Today we welcome State Representative Russ Diamond of the 102nd Legislative District in Lebanon County. We're going to have a discussion today about policy in Pennsylvania, specifically related to House Resolution 836 and how this relates to the governor's emergency powers and what is going on with that. I'm Chuck Nichols, Representative Diamond. Welcome to this discussion. Let's get a little bit of background first. This piece of legislation would have corralled the governor's actions when it comes to his disaster declaration, mm-hmm. when it comes to COVID-19, but it does it really has arms and tentacles that reach beyond that. Talk to us about why you started this piece of legislation down its path and, and where you were coming from when you crafted it. Well, I think we first have to talk about the fact that this legislation is a representation of the General Assembly's authority, which is in the same law as the governor's authority to declare a disaster emergency in the first place. So in 1978, when they wrote the Emergency uh, Services Management Code, they contemplated, hey, a governor can declare a disaster emergency, but you have to have a check and balance. So they wrote into the law that the General Assembly, by concurrent resolution, can terminate uh, a disaster emergency. Uh, I'm not sure they fully contemplated uh, that, as, as we'll get into later, but they did give the General Assembly the authority to do that. I... Uh, sent a memo out for co-sponsorship of this resolution uh, on, I think it was March 17th, which was the day after the governor announced that he was shutting down restaurants. Because I realized then that there were going to be some judgment calls that the governor was going to make. So I thought that the General Assembly needed to be in position uh, to terminate the disaster emergency just in case, just in case the governor overstepped his bounds. Because, you know, it's, it's one person as opposed to a deliberative body of 253 people. So w- when I introduced it, I got, a lot of, I got a lot of blowback because people thought, oh, you don't care about COVID. Well, no, it's not that. It's a legitimate check and balance in our Republican system of government. And somebody needs to exercise it. And because the legislative process takes several days constitutionally to happen, you need to have these things positioned. So I introduced it. And it just sat around for months. And, you know, a couple of members asked me about it. A couple of members co-sponsored it. And it was there. It was there. And then the governor just kept doing whatever the governor was doing. And as people got more and more fed up with the disaster emergency orders and edicts and the confusing messaging that was coming out of the governor's office, more and more people got supportive of House Resolution 836 to the point where uh, I believe it was in the middle of May, um, our House leadership thought, you know, we think the governor's gone too far and maybe we ought to call this up for a vote. So they scheduled it for a hearing in the uh, uh, Emergency Services and Veterans Affairs Committee uh, with Chairman Barrar. We had that hearing. I detailed the reasons why I thought we needed to do this at that time. And we moved it forward. We scheduled it for a vote on the floor. It passed the House. It went over to the Senate. The Senate sat around for a week or so, kind of, I think they tried to see what was going to happen at the end of the initial 90-day period of the governor's disaster emergency to see if he would renew it or not. Then he did. So then the Senate passed the resolution as well. Uh, They amended it, and they sent it back over to the House to concur in those amendments, which is, you know, what we have to do whenever the Senate changes anything. And then the House, again, voted to approve House Resolution 836. The Speaker signed it. So that was done. As far as the General Assembly is concerned, we terminated, we fulfilled our duty to terminate the disaster emergency. However, 
Uh, with concurrent resolutions, there's a little bit of an issue in that our Constitution says a concurrent resolution needs to go to the governor for his approval or disapproval. Now, there have been a few instances in the past where courts have ruled that certain concurrent resolutions don't need to go to the governor for his approval. And in this case, because a concurrent resolution is actually in opposition to the governor, it doesn't really make sense that the governor would have to approve it because, you you know, you're checking the power of the governor. So why would he have to sign that? And why would you give him the right to sign that? Because, of course, he's not going to sign it. Yeah. And, and, And that also brings us back to the original law that allowed the governor this power in the first place is that the 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 legislation that allowed that was written to say that that you didn't need to send it to the governor to get that power back. It was a legitimate check and balance. Well, actually, the the the, the law that was written in 1978 did not contemplate, did not even mention anything about saying the uh, you know sending this to the governor. It simply said that the governor has the right to declare an, a disaster emergency, and the general assembly has the right to terminate it by a concurrent amendment. And maybe uh, no one contemplated uh, the idea of it. Uh, long... I think that is the problem. I have not been able to search through the the archives, you know, through the House journals then, uh, to determine what was the legislative intent of that. I would really love to talk to a member of the General Assembly who was here in 1978, because I, I, at this point, I want to say, what were you thinking? Did you not think far enough ahead, and did you not ever contemplate that a governor would use? these disaster emergency powers in the way he has used it now in 2020 because I think it was a little bit short-sighted on their part I think and this is what I really think I think they didn't really think it all the way through and I think that many of them probably didn't know about article 3 section 9 of our constitution which states that all concurrent resolutions have to go to the governor to be signed because I have talked to several people who have 30 35, nearly 40 years experience in the General Assembly, and they weren't even aware of that particular provision of Article 3, Section 9, where this would have to go to the governor. So I'm thinking they just kind of overlooked it, and they didn't fully contemplate what they were doing in 1978 when they said And you have to understand that what was going on in 1978 was they, they had been through Hurricane Agnes. They had more floods in 1977, and in the winter of 77-78, we had the energy crisis. So at that time, you had a governor of one party. The legislature was of the same party. So they probably all thought, well, this is a good idea. Let's give the governor a little bit more time because people back then said, well, the state didn't do enough in these emergencies. So, okay, do something. Well, and they walked away and said, we did something contemplating the next emergency, but they didn't think it all the way through. I'm not going to fault them for that. I mean, it's, it's it happens sometimes. You can't think of every possibility. Hindsight is 2020. Yes, but now, it is. Now, now this brings us to where we are today. Right. The the resolution was passed, but then the governor uh, suggested that the, the Supremes take a look at this, and, and, and they issued a decision recently that that has thrown this uh, kind of in into a into a into a three-way battle of what's really going on how do we move forward right. how do we corral the power of the governor rightly so that he can't be a dictator because now we've got a situation where if the governor can control one-third of one chamber, that's 17 senators, right. and I believe 68 or 67. I can't do the math uh, in my uh, head uh, right now, but it's, uh, it's a very few. Look, our, our Republican form of government 
is based on the notion that we send all these leg- legislators to Harrisburg, 253 of us, and that the majority of those legislators are the ones with the legislative power. The way the court has ruled now, a governor could be elected, and on his first day in office, he could declare a disaster emergency. And as long as he has the support of 17 senators, that's 17 out of 253 legislators, he can keep that disaster emergency in place and do whatever he wants for four whole years, his entire term. And and serve just like Governor Wolf is serving right now, just issuing orders and edicts and ignoring you know, the right to know law and everything else is going on. I don't think that's a Republican form of government as guaranteed to us by the United States Constitution in Article 4, Section 4. So we have to figure out our way out of this now. Look, the Supreme Court had a couple choices uh, when they heard this case. They could have ruled the way they did, which was to say, no, the governor's in charge and, you know, too bad. Or they could have taken the tact of the chief justice, uh, 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 Chief Justice Saylor, in his dissenting opinion. He said, look, this is we understand that there is a, a conflict between the Constitution and the statutory law here that says the General Assembly can cancel it. And we can take this and look at it on, on, as a legal point of sui generis, which means one of a kind. This is a unique, unique case, and we have to balance the powers of are we going to have a Republican form of government or are we going to let COVID obliterate that? He took that position and thought maybe the court should come with it. And then there was a dissenting and concurring opinion from Justice Doherty, who who said, look, if if this is unconstitutional that the that the General Assembly needs to get the governor's signature on something that opposes the governor, then the entire law should be unconstitutional and be thrown out and the governor wouldn't have any disaster emergency authority at all. So they picked one of three ways. And and all three ways, look, you you have reasonable arguments behind each one of those three ways. But the majority of the court went with the way they did, which says, no, the governor needs to sign it. So what we're doing now in the General Assembly, we're actually taking House Resolution 836, the signed version from the Speaker of the House and the, and, and the pro tem of the Senate, and we're going to actually present it to the governor. Uh, because that's pretty much what the court said. Present it to the governor. Force him to veto. Yeah. So we're going to see what the governor does. I'm sure that the governor will disapprove it. It's actually not called a veto in this. Con- it's called approve or disapprove, not veto. So we expect he will disapprove it. And then we will bring it back to the House and the Senate. And we will run uh, an override vote for that to see if we can get to through thirds. Maybe we can. I'm thinking we probably won't. But at least that then establishes that, okay, now we have a basis for doing what we are already planning to do next, which is to amend the Constitution to make sure that concurrent resolutions terminating disaster emergencies do not have to go to the governor. We are also going to amend the, uh, attempt to amend the Constitution to make sure that when the governor does declare a disaster emergency, it only goes 21 days before the General Assembly then has to go in and affirm by a concurrent resolution that that disaster emergency can continue. So the checks and balances of our Republican form of government can remain intact. So that's our plan right now. And so really, we have to kind of take COVID out of this and and, and look at it and say, any disaster emergency, any governor, 
any legislature, we need to have these checks and balances in place, lest someone become a dictator. Well, absolutely. And, you, and unlike what I think they didn't do fully in 1978, we have to be contemplative of what might happen. I mean, how do we function? How do we continue to govern? So you have to contemplate all those sorts of things. And then you have to say, well, what if this? What if that? What if that? And we spent a lot of time over the past week, two weeks, uh, writing these new amendments to the Constitution. Now, again, let's be clear. An amendment to the Constitution, we have to pass it in this session. We'll have to come back in the next legislative uh, session and pass it after we've advertised what we've done and we sit for a general election just in case people say, we hate this idea and we're going to unelect all of you for it. Uh, that's the process in Pennsylvania. So we'll come back then next year, pass those same amendments again with the exact same language, and then it goes to the ballot. And no branch of government has a say over whether it becomes a part of the Constitution or not. It's the people themselves who get to go vote up or down. And it looks like, at this point, it looks like we will have three or four constitutional amendments on the ballot in 2021 at some point, perhaps at the primary election, maybe at the general election, that people will be able to vote on that are um, almost all related to this disaster emergency situation. Well, all I can say is uh, please come back and do another one of these. Keep us informed. We need to make sure that our rights are not trampled on when we're trying to do what is best for everybody in the state. We absolutely do. Thanks for joining us. You bet.